Okay, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you are the God who gives us your word and you give us, Father, grace. And Lord God, how we need that this morning. I pray that you would bless us, cause us to draw near to you. Let this be a fruitful time, Father, and let your, your name be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to do another Ask the Pastor. You can ask anything you want. Uh, I know there were a lot of hands last time that we didn't get to. And I do want you to know that I have my Sunday school lesson done. It's not that I'm getting out of work by doing this. Um, but I've been thinking about doing this for a while. When the other class is canceled, I thought this is, makes sense because I got people coming in, you know, from another class maybe. And just jumping into the middle of Deuteronomy would be a little bit more difficult than doing something like this. That maybe would be a special thing we do once in a while. To get us started, I wanted to point out a couple of things. I'll just start off with something that's in my text. I did not get anything new via email um, this week. But I want you to notice in the sermon text, if you go in your Bibles, and this is always the case. Whenever I do a sermon, and I'm sure any minister who does a sermon would say the same thing, there are questions in the text that you just don't bring to the pulpit. Not because they're not important, but you can't do everything. And you've got to sort of pick the message that you want to preach from the text. And you can't answer every question, you know, that's been brought up over the history of 2,000 years. It's all you would do. Uh, but there are certain things that are interesting that some people uh, maybe struggle with. And I always feel bad if that happens and somebody comes up to me and I didn't deal with that, though I saw it, though I had information on it. But again... I tried to choose what I chose to try to have a message that had some coherence to it and wasn't all over the place trying to resolve every possible issue. Uh, but if you look in our text this morning, so our text this morning is the Annunciation to Mary. That's what it's been known historically as, verses 26 through 38 of Matthew chap or Luke chapter 1. It's been known that to be that for at least 1,500 years. Uh, it's just the word, Latin word annuncio, which is announcement, uh, to Mary. Um, and this is where she learns of the virgin birth, her pregnancy, and the coming of Jesus. Um, Matthew chapter 1 has the Annunciation to Joseph, where Joseph learns the same thing. And, you know, there are titles like this um, that refer, that scholars use to refer to different sections of Scripture, sometimes the songs of the Bible. So, you know, don't get caught up on that. That's the way anybody who works with Scripture would understand this text. It's the Annunciation to Mary. That's what it's called. Um, but there's some things in the text. So, for example, Mary is never said to be a descendant of David. Did you know that? There's no passage in Scripture that says Mary is a descendant of David. Um, we infer that from a few places. Um, one of the ways to interpret Luke's genealogy is that it's the genealogy of Mary, and that works because when a man married a woman, I mean, he had his genealogy from his father and going back. And that's the way the inheritance passed through Israel, through your father. If you were the firstborn, you inherited. Remember, you weren't allowed to sell your inheritance because it was a type of heaven. If you couldn't have children, your brother went into your widow to raise up seed in your name. All kinds of things that we don't do today, right? Because it's typical, it's ceremonial. Israel is a type of the kingdom of God on earth. It's not the real thing. Right? That's why they had to keep the father's name going. You couldn't marry outside your tribe. There were all kinds of things that we don't do now. Those things are fulfilled. Those were only for Israel. 
all right? Um, but, uh, so, so Luke's genealogy could be the genealogy of Mary because it says, you know, uh, Joseph supposedly being uh, the son, or supposedly being the son of Joseph. Let me actually get to the text and just read it. So when it starts to do the, uh, the genealogy, Jesus himself began his ministry about 38 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Hel- Heli, and so forth. Now it doesn't say uh, the son of, we, we put that in there in English. It just says um, that uh, of each one. So if I would look at it in the Greek text, and this is important too because you think, well, it says the son of, and Joseph couldn't be the son of uh, Heli if he is if this is Mary's genealogy, but it doesn't say the son of. It just says Joseph of Heli, uh, Mathat of Levi, of, of, of. That's all it says. It doesn't say son of. Uh, and again, if, you, if you're married in Israel and you are the son of your father, but you're also the son of your father-in-law, and you would be called that. So Joseph would be called the son of Heli. because that's his father-in-law. We even do that, right? I'm the son-in-law of my father-in-law. I'm the son. We still do that. So the genealogy could be um, Mary's genealogy, and historically a lot of people have taken that position. Um, But it could be that the genealogy in Luke is giving the actual physical descendants of Joseph, okay, and the genealogy in Matthew are giving the heir to the throne. And this is why they differ, and yet at several points they intersect again. Right? You, you had them the same all the way to David. And then from Solomon gets the throne, so Solomon's named in Matthew. But Nathan is named as the son of David in Luke because Nathan, according to this theory, would be the actual biological great, 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 great grandfather of Joseph. Okay? So you have the, the royal heir genealogy of Matthew, and you have the actual physical genealogy of Joseph and they intersect because if you've ever seen any royal house or studied it, you know, study the house of Windsor in England and you'll see, well, this person's son didn't have any son. So it goes back to the uncle and his son. And so it can go back and forth. And that's why. So for example, with Zerubbabel and Shealtiel, it intersects again. Matthew and Luke are the same because one of their fathers didn't have a son. So it went back to the cousin or the uncle, the nearest relative followed his son. That would have been The same then. So a couple of times in Joseph's actual genealogy, his great-great-great-grandfather and then the next one and then the next one were in the line for the throne, but then one of them didn't have sons. So it jumped back to somebody else's line and it wasn't Joseph's direct again. But by the time it gets to Joseph, Joseph is the heir to the throne. That's why Joseph's in both genealogies. So Joseph is the heir to the throne. If they were still kings in Israel, Joseph would have been king. And Joseph is the actual uh, direct descendant of Joseph whose genealogy we're, we're showing in Luke. And so that could be a way to understand it. But I'm just pointing out that nowhere does it say that Mary is of David. It makes it clear that Mary was betrothed to Joseph who was of the house of David. Now the reason why we, we say that Mary probably was descendant of David is because in Luke 2... When they go, because of Caesar's decree, you have to go to your hometown to be registered. It said Joseph went with Mary. They both were living in Nazareth at that time, but they were both born, therefore, in Bethlehem, which is of the tribe of Judah. And so we say Mary was of the tribe of Judah, whether or not Luke's genealogy is Mary's genealogy. She would have been a descendant of David, too. 
um, because she had to go with Joseph and he would never have taken his very pregnant wife from Nazareth to Bethlehem if she could just register in Nazareth as her hometown. But she wasn't. She was of the tribe of Judah. So we, we infer that she was. But again, uh, she doesn't need to be what, 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 the scripture ne- what the scripture demands is that the promise to David's descendant would be fulfilled. And David's descendant is traced through Joseph, who is the rightful heir to the throne, who is, would be, would have been the father of Jesus, but God pronounced that it would be done through a virgin birth. But we trace, we trace Jesus' claim to the throne through Joseph, because that's the way it goes in Israel, and that's the way it has to be, even though he's not as a biological child. So that would be one of those problems. You can see why I don't bring that into the sermon, because it would take 15 minutes to explain it, and nobody, for the most part, cares. Maybe one or two of you have struggled with that. You know, the genealogies don't line up or, you know, how does this work? Uh, so anyway, I, I just do that to get us started. And does anybody have a question that you would like to do? Or I can continue to mess around with my text and tell you some more interesting details about Joseph and Mary. Where do you want to start? Nate. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I, I'm, that's a great question. I can't answer like you know specifically, and I'm sure it's different for different Jewish families. But in general. Uh, they reject the New Testament. They reject the idea that Jesus was uh, of uh, the line of David and was the rightful heir to the throne and all that. Um, and they would say the New Testament is corrupt. You know, um, I can tell you this, that in the Talmud, it says that Jesus was the um, bastard son of Mary who had an adulterous affair with a Roman centurion. That's what it actually says. Uh, to shame him more, um, because... You know, you want to say that she was a scandalous woman and that he's born out of wedlock, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, that, but that's what they're taught. They're taught that and that, that there's some very troubling statements in some of the ancient Jewish uh, traditional literature like the Talmud or, I mean, uh, where describing how Jesus is suffering in hell and how Mary is suffering in hell, et cetera, stuff like that. This is one of the reasons why. You know, people don't recognize, you know, why did the church react the way it did and certain people react the way they did against Judaism in the Middle Ages. Judaism said some really bad things about Christianity, you know, and persecuted Christians. Who's running around persecuting Paul, trying to put him to death? The Jews. You know, let's not forget that, you know. So there's a context to everything. Uh, we look at it now and we see Israel being persecuted, you know, by the Palestinian terrorists and all that stuff over there. And, you know, and I think many Christians, and in a sense, rightly so, uh, see a kinship with Israel because we know we're the children of Abraham just like they are. And we want them to embrace their Messiah because he is their Messiah. And they don't. Uh, and so we see that. But historically, you know, there were times where if you were a Christian and you knew somebody was a Jew, you were hiding because they were going to get you. So, yeah. Yeah. No, no, and, and everybody would agree with that, that there is no way. In fact, one of the arguments against, I'm sorry? 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's really no genealogy extant where anybody can really prove by an unbroken record that they are a descendant of Abraham. Nobody can do that today. So the way in which people go to Israel, and you know, because you have to be able to prove your Jewish descent to, to live in Israel, the way in which you do that is, well, you know, you, you show that you were the family of some Jewish family that you could trace back, you know, at least into the Middle Ages or something, um, or, you know, well, my parents raised, said we were Jewish and we were members of this synagogue in Europe and that's good enough um, because they can't go back to David. Nobody can. Nobody can go back to any tribe. There's not a single person alive today. There's no records extant today that can show anybody's a true Jew, which means, this is really important, which means if the Messiah hasn't come yet, the descendant of David, he has to be a descendant of David, no one can ever know when he does. He can't come and we know, oh, this is a descendant of David. There's no way to check that. Nobody knows today who the descendants of David are. There may still be some alive. We don't believe that David's house, you know, those kings had a lot of children. They had wives, you know. Uh, at one point, they're all wiped out except for Josh, but, you know, then they, then they spread out again. But uh, so, you know, there's no way to know for a Jew if the Messiah would show up and say, I'm of the line of David, you couldn't know that for sure or not know that for sure. Unless some great new archaeological discovery would be discovered and not only show unbroken lines, but show that it wasn't tampered with and everything else. That, that, that's a pretty high hurdle uh, to achieve. So, yeah, that's, that's an important thing to notice. Other questions? on anything that you might be interested in, in the Bible or? Yes, Ron. Sure. Uh, and you'll hear me say this a lot of times in sermons, that there are basically two uh, families, you know, broadly speaking, of texts uh, that we have. We don't have any of the original manuscripts of the books of the Bible. None of them, Old Testament or New Testament. But we have ancient copies and uh, unctuals and, you know, collections of various uh, books that would be put together or even just fragments, you know, and they put together these fragments and then they date them through various means. And so, you know, just from um, fragments and so forth, we can show, you know, enormous uh, accuracy that we have today because you can compare all these fragments. There are thousands and thousands of them, you know, from in the first couple of hundred years uh, after Christ. And so, you know, textual criticism is a great science in the sense of we can see real clearly something that's been added or something that's been changed or something like that because you've got so many things to compare it to that you can do a pretty good job, all right? Um, so uh, up until they find the Codex uh, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, which are different uh, manuscript, uh, especially the Vaticanus one, that's found later. When the King James, for example, is translated, uh, that's the Texas Receptus. And that's really, at that time, 1600s, we only had so many manuscripts to go by. And so the Textus Receptus, the received text, 
okay? Obviously, they were pretty pleased with themselves with what they had. Um, they uh, were the authorized version, right? You know, um, obviously, these are loaded uh, adjectives. But the, the reason why they say that is, okay, at that time, that's all they had. They had there are about a dozen um, um, manuscripts of the New Testament, about a dozen or so, uh, from uh, uh, Byzantium, okay, Byzant, the Byzantine um, city. And so um, that's what we had. That's what we went by. Uh, Erasmus makes the first Greek New Testament in, you know, years. Luther and the Reformers actually all credited Erasmus for bringing the original Greek back because all they had was the Latin. That's all anybody looked at anymore because Rome was so infatuated with Latin, which they thought was superior to anything in the East, which they associated with the Eastern Orthodox, who they had anathemized each other. So there's all kinds of stuff going on. So anyway, so you have these manuscripts, and they're good. They're, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with them. And we find a lot more in Byzantium, tons. And that's why the majority text... Uh, it basically is all these uh, Byzantium manuscripts of which about a dozen are from the, New King, or from the old King James, the Textus Receptus. They're also from Byzantium. But there's sometimes there's differences between the majority text and the Textus Receptus because those 12 don't compromise the majority of the majority text. Usually they're the same, but not always. Sometimes majority text is different from Textus Receptus. Now the critical text is, uh, and, and sometimes you'll read in your Bible margins, you know, the oldest and best manuscripts. Now, that's a, that's a judgment that's being said there. How do we know they're the best? They're the most well-preserved. Well, that could mean because nobody looked at them because they knew they were faulty. I mean, again, think of the subjectiveness of saying the oldest and best. First of all, oldest too, I would even, uh, you know, a lot of the work I've done in the show that I do, Origins, there's so many errors and biases into dating things, you know. Um, it's not like you can just look at something and stick it in a microscope and it comes back, you know, 284 B.C. or something. That's not the way dating works. They look at other things that they think are from that error and they already have a bias there. And so there's a lot of bias that goes into dating uh, things. Um, and I could give you some more examples on that. But anyway, so, uh, but by, by and large, the critics, the scholars think the critical text these texts that they find, you know, in the Vatican and other places years later, like in the 1800s, 19, early 1900s, uh, 1800s really, most of them, that, that becomes the critical text, right? Because the critics say they're better, they're a better family of manuscripts. And so um, you'll see uh, in your Bibles, you know, a CT, usually critical text, M, usually majority text, and the little discrepancies that are here and there. Uh, none of them affect any kind of doctrine. You know, none of them, you know, for example, say Jesus is the son of God. Jesus isn't the son of God. Typically, it'll be like the majority text says Jesus. The uh, critical text says the Lord. Okay, or the majority text says, um, you know, um, running. Uh, and the critical text says he ran. It's that kind of stuff. It doesn't affect anything. The vast majority of them. There's only a few places where, you know, uh, it, it's a little bit more significant, but never does it, any doctrine depend upon it, you know. Uh, so that's uh, important to recognize that. Um, the, I go by the majority text simply because, to me, that's objective. It's objective to count texts. It's not objective to say, these ones are better. Why do you say that? What makes them better? How do you know they're more accurate with regards to the original? That's the only way they're better. Are they more accurate? You know the original without seeing it? You can say that? 
You know, that, that's why I reject the premise of the critical text. Um, I don't know that, and again, some of the fragments that go earlier than the critical text line up more with the majority text. Sometimes the church fathers line up more. Um, you know, here's an example. So John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. You'll read in your Bibles all the time, right? This text is not like here in many of the manuscript traditions. It's somewhere else. It's at the end of this. It's removed. It's whatever, you know, John chapter 8, whatever it is, verses 1 to 8, woman caught in adultery. Um, if you read Augustine, and Augustine's writing, you know, early 400s, late 300s, before any of these manuscript traditions, the big, you know, unctuals that the critical text and the majority text come from are all in the late four, mid, late four, and then 500s, because that's where you get all of the letter, you know, the whole New Testament put together, uh, even though we have tons of fragments and partial books before that. But uh, Augustine just flat out says that the reason why that this, um, you know, and, and he would again have access to things that we didn't being that early, the reason why um, we don't find this, you know, we find some uh, difficulty in I'm trying to call the text up myself and my Bible works is not cooperating with me. Um, he says that the reason why uh, we see some discrepancy and some, some, you know, scholars even wanting to dispute John chapter 8 is because they're embarrassed by it. Um, why doesn't Jesus condemn the woman? She's committed adultery. I mean, think about that. We don't, we don't approach that text. Oh, look how wonderful and merciful Jesus is, how he spares this adulterous woman. That's what she was. All right, And that's what Augustine points out. The Bible theologians and scholars don't know what to do with this because Jesus doesn't condemn this woman who should be condemned. And so like there was some, so that's why, you know, maybe you find some, some anomalies there because not because there wasn't evidence that it should be right where it is in John 8, but some guys didn't know what to do with it. And so they, so, so that's some of the things that you find as well in the text. Other questions? John, Don. In a sense, that's what the critical text tries to do. The critical text claims um, that it is um, doing just that. It's using the science of textual criticism and it's picking all from all these different families of texts what it thinks is the best text, the most accurate text, again, aligning with um, the original autographs that we don't have. Uh, one of the criticisms that the majority text gives against that approach is what you've created is a text that doesn't actually exist. There's no actual manuscript that looks like the critical text in history. They take from all these different ones, even in their own Vaticanus manuscript copies, which differ at times, and they create a manuscript. Okay, the majority text is itself complete. Each one of the copies of it, complete. For, it, it, it exists in reality. The majority text exists in reality. The critical text is a creation of scholars. Um, so they take that. The problem, Donna, you know, here's the, here's the thing that's important, it seems to me. Not so much can we ever do that, because unless we have the original manuscripts, how can we know? But I think the science of textual criticism overwhelmingly shows us, again, 
how accurate and how how much we can trust that what we have in the New Testament, if it's a literal translation, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff out there right now in English translations. These gender neutral translations where they change pronouns. That's been happening in, the, in Bible translations for 25 years. You know, we, we're just seeing this garbage in the culture now. But, you know, they've been tweaking with the pronouns, trying to make it more gender inclusive for decades in, in Bible translators. Uh, and that's just wicked. Because the masculine includes the feminine. And we can see when it does. If the Holy Spirit says man, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. Man is male and female. Then we should not change that. Because we think it's nicer to say people. The Holy Spirit said man. How dare anybody change that? So to me, you know, that's the, that's the more dangerous thing. When we get away from the literal translation into English. Now, you have to do some things because we can't, you know, no language, no translator would ever woodenly, as literal as possible, bring in. I mean, if I'm, I'm looking at, you know, for example, so I'm looking at Luke 3, 23, and I got the Greek and the English open here in my, and, and if I said, very literally, Luke 3, 23, so it's kai altos ein ha Jesus jose, uh, so here's what I would say, and he, he was the Jesus about uh, 30 years ruling, beginning. Uh, you, you see, that's not what you're going to do. You know, and if you've ever learned any language, Spanish or whatever, you recognize you have to do a little tweaking to go from one language to the other because of the way things are. Um, so trans, there's always going to be a question whenever you do a translation, John. Somebody, Don, somebody might say, well, I like the word stop better here to translate that word in this context. No, I like the word halt better. No, I like the word, you know, uh, cease. I mean, so many English words can be used for this one Greek word. So you're always going to have opinions you know, on which best captures the meaning at that point. Uh, that's why I think, I mean, if you're going to be a scholar, you've got to go back to the languages. That's why all of the Reformed denominations require Reformed ministers to take a full gamut of Greek and Hebrew. If I can't go back to the Greek and Hebrew with some skill, then what good am I? You know, and it's a shame when men get into the pulpits and they let that go and they lose it. I try uh, once a week to, and then I've kept up pretty good on it. I'm working through the whole Old Testament in Hebrew. I'm in Ezekiel. But you've got to keep that. You've got to keep that because, you know, that's, that's the only way you can really know and you can talk in an educated way about the English, which is how we understand it. But, you know, you don't need to know the languages to know God, to know your duty, and to know theology really, really well. Uh, it's been said that Augustine did not know Greek very well. You know, he was a Western writer. He wrote in Latin. Jerome knew Greek well. In fact, he he's the one who translates the New Testament into the Vulgate, the, you know, the celebrated uh, translation of the Roman church. At the time of the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, Council of Trent, they say is inerrant. I mean, they basically come out and say the Vulgate is the, the final, you know, translation. Now, they're kind of embarrassed about that now. But, um, but still, uh, it's, it's commonly held by Reformed people that though Augustine didn't know Greek very well, his theology was way better than Jerome's, 
who knew Greek really well. Jerome's got a lot of serious errors, especially on his Mariology uh, and things like that. So again, you know, like you can learn and you can know the New Testament. And, and I don't think, I just don't think that that's a big deal, Don, to try to get like, we, with the science of textual criticism, we know that our translations are what the Word of God is. You know, we, our copies are more reliable than any copy of anything that you get. You know, I just was reading a book, uh, newly published, and I, I, and I always notice these. I, catch, I caught a spelling error in the book. You know, we have more errors in our modern trying to make copies of things than they did in their ancient copies because they were so meticulous, so careful. You know, the scribes were, were so uh, uh, just determined to not have any error. One error is found. The whole book is destroyed. The manuscript, all these little Hebrew notations, you know, in the Masera Parva and the Masera Menorah. And what that is is like they count all the letters in that chapter. Here's the center letter. I mean, stuff like that to double check everything. You know, it was just amazing, you know, how accurate it was. And one of the criticisms against the Bible was, well, you know, the, the, the oldest Old Testament manuscript is 10th century. And it was till the Dead Sea Scrolls, 10th century. So, you know, the Old Testament canon is, is done in like, you know, 500 B.C., 400 and something B.C. And then we have 1,500 years before we have a copy. Surely there must be all kinds of changes and corruptions. And then they find the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of them dated to 300, 350 B.C., and it's word for word, what we had in the 10th century, word for word for word. Uh, and so, you know, and the New Testament's even better, far better as far as the evidence, the manuscript traditions, all of the things that we have, far more accurate. We can be far more assured. But, but I mean, we are, we're fully assured with the Old Testament, far more so with the New, because, again, thousands and thousands and thousands of fragments and manuscripts that we can look and say, you know, this is the New Testament. So... I, I think that's a kind of a will-o'-the-wisp, Don, to say, could we get the perfect, you know? Unless God wills that we find the original manuscripts, we're not going to have that. But what we have is the Word of God. It is accurate. We can know that. Yes? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, in general, um, you know, as a session, we don't have to figure that out like officially because, you know, we are in the PCA. And if you're an elder in the PCA, you've taken vows to a certain set of doctrines, the Westminster Standards and the Book of Church Order, which applies a lot of that. So we don't have to figure out certain things, right? We don't just like start from scratch. Uh, we have the whole Reformed tradition coming down, you know, into the PCA. And, um, you know, there are so many things that we have stated are false teachings. Uh, you know, you've heard me recently talk about uh, the false teaching of Pado communion because that, I know, was getting spread around a little bit in the church. But the PCA has spoken on that. That is false teaching for the PCA. Now, it doesn't rise to the level of heresy. The federal vision is heresy. That's one of the doctrines of the federal vision. But that doctrine itself is not heresy. You can believe in paedo communion and be a Christian. But the PCA says it's false. Okay? 
And so, um, same thing, you know, like uh, I have brothers and sisters in the, you know, the Pentecostal church, you know, and they believe in the ongoing spiritual charismatic gifts that you can speak in tongues, maybe even have the gift of healing and things like that. I, I think God can still heal people and I pray for that, but I just don't think that there is somebody given that gift today that can go around and touch people. I wish they were right on that. I really do. Um, but again, that's an error that they make that I think they make and that our denomination would say they make, but they, they, they're still, we don't doubt that they're Christians if they believe in Jesus Christ as their savior, they're saved by grace, not by works, Christ alone, et cetera, et cetera. That's the core gospel. And so uh, while they may be in error on those things, those errors don't rise to the level of, of heresy uh, where it actually compromises the gospel. Um, and so, you know, I say that to say the same thing is true with some of these other doctrines. Um, but when the PCA speaks on something, you know what I mean? At that point, if you have integrity, you have to leave the PCA. If I have integrity and, and the PCA says, you know, X doctrine is false and I think X doctrine is true, the right thing to do is not circulate my view that X doctrine is true and subvert the government that I took a vow to. No, the right thing to do is maybe go to the leadership, maybe try to convince them, do it openly, outwardly, not behind the scenes, privately, try to stir up a revolt. But no, okay, I, I could try to challenge it. Go to the GA, try to challenge it, try to convince them that they're erring. But if the GA and the PCA say, no, this is false, and I'm convinced that it's true, it's my duty to leave the PCA. I mean, that, that's what it means to be a, a person of integrity. You've got to leave if you believe something is true that the PCA says is false. Uh, now, when it comes to specific books and things, you know, there's always going to be certain things that that maybe we don't agree with and, and so forth. Um, but that's going to change even from elder to elder. You know, one elder might say, oh, no, that's good. And, they, you know, these are minor things, et cetera. And so when we, when we approve a book, you know, for a Bible study or something like that, um, um, usually, like if it's a Sunday school class, it's an elder that's teaching it. Um, and so we've already put a, you know, we don't do a lot here that, that's not done by the elders or led by the elders because they, they've taken the vows. You see, there's the accountability. The elders have taken the vows that we are going to be what the PCA is. If I can't do that in, in, good in, you know, in integrity, then I need, to, I need to give up the office of elder if I have integrity. But if, I'm, if I'm belie you know, I believe these things... Uh, and then I'm going to enforce them, you know, and, and recognize there's a range of views on things like end times and, you know, all sorts of other things that, you know, elders disagree on, various views regarding women's ministry in the church and things like that. Um, but um, on those sort of things, we want to be gracious and so forth. And I guess it really comes down to, you know, the session. If, if, if there's a couple of guys that have a serious problem with the book, for the most part, we're going to say no. You know, if everybody's like, hey, for the most part, this book's good. The elder can correct it when it's not, you know, then we're going we're gonna to be okay with it. So, anything else? Yes, Esther. Oh, yeah, this question comes up a lot. Like, where should you start? Um, I think, I, I mean, if somebody's like, you know, now if they're already a Christian, is that what you said, a beginning Christian or, okay. Uh, if they're a Christian and they want to learn doctrine, um, I know this is, you know, 
somewhat controversial because most people say that in a certain sense, John is the most complicated gospel. But I like the gospel of John uh, for new Christians because I think you get the whole picture. You know, in the beginning was the word. So you start off in the beginning, but you start off with Jesus. You know what I mean? And then you see these various signs that John, John writes his gospel about these things, you know, these signs that Jesus did that you may believe that he's a Christ. So here's a book that, that states its purpose at the end of the book, in John chapter 21, these things were written that you may believe. You know, these, I've written about these signs, these particular signs. Eight, eight particular signs that John talks about. You know, this first sign Jesus performed at Cana of Galilee when he turned the water into wine. This is the second sign. So John even chronicles these particular signs that we would believe. And so a new believer wanting to grow in their faith, I would take them to, I would send them to John. And I, yeah, there's, there's tons of stuff that you can study the rest of your life in John, but I think the basic gospel is clearly expounded there and, uh, you know, and some of the dialogues. And it really shows the spiritual of who Jesus is, which I think is where we're at today. We need to see Jesus, you know, giving the Holy Spirit and so forth. I think that's going to help the new believer uh, probably the most, even though, again, there's tons of stuff that's, yeah, complicated. Pat. Um, Calvin and, and the other scholars were able to go to the Greek. Uh, Calvin and them, they, they thank Erasmus because Erasmus, you know, publishes this Greek New Testament having access to the Vatican and, and um, the manuscripts. And so for the first time in a long time, a Greek New Testament is available to scholars. And a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, Reformed um, commentators, you know, will say that, you know, if you look historically, there was a movement called humanism that precedes the Reformation. Humanists like Erasmus and others who were calling on, you know, the Pope and the church leaders to be more humane, you know, humanism. Um, and, and so you have them criticizing a lot of the extravagancies and so forth and a lot of the sins and, and looking for a more moral uh, Reformation. Thomas Kempis, the imitation of Christ, which comes out in the 1400s, you know, calling people to just, you know, follow the basic Jesus. Don't get caught up in all the stuff that the Roman clergy in the Curia are doing with their wealth and all this stuff. And so calling people back to a simple faith. And then you have Erasmus bringing uh, the, the, the words, the New Testament words of Greek uh, together. Those things, a lot of people would say, are the necessary precursor to the Reformation, that if there isn't you know, sort of this emphasis again on, on the simple gospel and simple faith and then the tools provided by the scholars to give the reformers a way to skip past the Latin and some of the errors that are there. You know, like uh, one of the things notorious in the Latin is we read repent, but the Latin translation many times will say do penance. Oh, wow. The Bible teaches the Roman sacraments. It says do penance. No, Greek says metanoia, Repent which is a change of mind, nous, noia, mind, uh, uh, meta, you know, change. So, um, uh, so that's one of the reasons why they had to get back to the Greek. Because by the Latin, you know, there's, again, there's a sense in which you could get that from the translation and still, but you, st but you have to know really the Greek to be able to recognize, oh, that's what do penance means. It means repent. 
And, and that's just one example. So, yeah, Calvin and these guys would have gone back to the original languages. The Hebrew. In fact, Calvin, many places, comments on the Hebrew. And Luther did, too. Luther had to learn Hebrew. And he talks about what a difficult language it was. And almost no New Testament, I mean, you know, church, Christian scholar looked at the Hebrew anymore. It, it, that, was, that was new with the Reformation. I mean, you have to go back to um, the Abbey of St. Victor. Uh, and people like Andrew of St. Victor, uh, who, who knew Hebrew, uh, who studied it. Because you had the Vulgate. You don't need to look at the Hebrew anymore. Um, and so there were, you know, that, that was huge, too, to be able to, And so Luther going to the Hebrew, trying to figure out, you know, and he writes about how he tried to figure out some of the lists of fruits and stuff, not knowing what they are, and the animals, and trying to bring them into the German and so forth. Um, but, yeah, that, the Reformation would not have happened, I, I agree, without knowing the actual words of Scripture in the actual language. Yes, Daniel. We used to give out here, and there may be more better updated ones, but one of the, like the, the Bible that we would give out to the kids, and it's not a kid's Bible. I mean, it was uh, a kid's Bible in some ways, but there was a, um, an NIV student Bible um, that um, I don't know if you can still get it. It would have to be based on the 1984 NIV. You do not want the TNIV, which is gender-neutral garbage. Um, but there was a, it was called the, it was just called the student Bible. It was in the NIV and NIV is, is fine. You know, it's not, I know it's not as literal as the new King James or the new American standard, but, uh, it is highly readable. It's very accurate in some places. I could even show you where some reform scholars have said it's more accurate. You know, for example, in Acts chapter 20, where Paul says, you know, I have not, um, um, shrunk from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The NIV says, I have not hesitated from declaring to you the whole. And that brings out, even though it's not literal, in English that stronger brings out how Paul did not even for a second bat an eye at declaring the whole counsel of God. The NIV actually does a better job. But um, what I also like about the NIV, it does give a lot of explanatory notes um, in the student Bible that are sort of, uh, many of them, friendly to reform theology, like clearly God has to choose you and things like that. It's not like full-blown the Reformation Study Bible, but it's very accurate. Uh, and I've, I've always been impressed with it when I go back and look at it. It's very, it doesn't get as deep as the Reformation Study Bible, but you know, it affirms you know, the basic Christian beliefs. And if somebody was brand new to the faith, that's back in the day what I would have said. There's probably newer things out there now. If you're going to buy an NIV, buy the 1984 translation of the NIV. The TNIV is not out anymore. It's just, they just, the NIV is the gender neutral version. Okay. So you have to make sure that it's the 1984. Yeah, I'd be very, if you can't ascertain that it is 1984 publishing date, don't buy the NIV. I mean, it's, you know, the new revised standard, the NRSV, and so many others. Pat.
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that is a good question. Um, so if you're not familiar, the Revoice, uh, there was this conference, Revoice conference, where um, they talked about what's been called a side B Christianity. And basically, they, it boils down to this. You can be a gay Christian. Okay, you can say, I'm gay, I'm homosexual, and I'm a Christian. I just don't practice. You know, so... I am gay, I am homosexual, but I'm going to be um, chaste because I know that practicing my sexual preference uh, is sinful. Now, I think as a Christian, you should immediately see an inconsistency there. If this is who you are, and yet you're not going to practice it, right? You know, then you got to blame God at some level. And again, that's why I'm always going to say there's no such thing as a homosexual. There's no such thing as a gay person. There's a person who has desires for sex that are against the word of God. And there's a lot of them now, well beyond, you know, same sex desires. I mean, you know, artificial intelligence relationships now and all sorts of crazy things, you know, inanimate objects, animals. I mean, just crazy stuff people have desire for. That makes them who they are. Just, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous on the face of it. But anyway, so that was happening in this, you know, and, and there, were, there was a PCA pastor, a couple of them, I believe, who spoke at the conference. One or two professors at um, Covenant Seminary, which is the PCA seminary. So a big storm came out of it. Um, on the one side, you had guys trying to claim it was just one conference and we didn't know who else was going to be there. And I was just asked to speak and I didn't say any of that. And I didn't know other guys were going to say that. So there was a lot of stuff that had to be sorted through. Um, it was one of those things where you kind of knew what it was, but you couldn't just, you had to prove that. And so you have to wade through the arguments of, you know, uh, we didn't mean it that way and all that kind of stuff. Um, but long story short, the PCA um, is really, you know, they, they like to talk about grassroots and states' rights. The PCA was the southern denomination, not a very strong central government. You know, the, 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 the denomination does not own the building. Providence owns this building, and that's in our book of church order as a solemn vow. Never can the denomination own all the buildings. Each church owns its building. So you have this, this authority and this power at the you know, basic level. We don't have to support the General Assembly and be a church of good standing at the PCA. We don't have to send anybody. We don't have to send any um, um, uh, money to the, to the denomination. In, in the mainline churches, you do. You have to send money. You have to support them. The government is stronger at the central and so they can legislate things. But because of that, Pat, because of this, you know, we have a weak central government, they couldn't really do anything. You know what I mean? So you have one presbytery said, no, we looked into it, it's fine. The General Assembly then to overturn that needed several presbyteries to appeal it. And they keep making that percentage higher. So, and it's hard to get another presbytery to say, this presbytery is doing something bad and I, we want the General Assembly to investigate. That's hard. That's a huge argument at Presbytery. A lot of guys don't say it's none of our business. We don't even know the context. How can we say this? And so you have this battle at each Presbytery to get that Presbytery to petition the General Assembly to look into it. 
So that took, and then that, you know, that, that only happens, General Assembly only happens once a year. So you get these petitions that'll come once a year. Then they have to be, you know, whether or not they're accepted, whether or not the, you know, the different courts on constitutional business say they're in order, if something was done out of order. I mean, think about how this happens, you know, in, 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 the, in our government. The charges will be brought, but the Supreme Court will say they're brought improperly and they throw it out. Even though there may be a case there, you didn't word it right, you didn't appeal to the right statute, and that happens in the PCA. So that's slow. You know, everything just gets slowed down. And so it really is difficult um, to really correct things. If a, if a presbytery says it's fine, it's really hard. We were able to do that with the Federal Vision back in the Northwest presbyteries, but that took several GAs to do that. And so it's just a, it's a long process. Yeah. So, Ron. So when you say that, I'm assuming you mean like for us Americans, the culture, not like the culture in China or, yeah, okay. Be, church. So church in America, what we're facing in the West, because it's different in different countries. Um, that's a good question. Um, I would have to, I think at some level, I'm going to go to the idea of objective truth that there is objective truth, you know, the, the, the relativism that has led us to where we are today, where, you know, if, if everything's up to you and what you feel and what you think, then who's to say you can't be a woman in a man's body? You know, I think it really boils down to we've denied objective truth, objective, knowable, rational truth. You know, these principles, you know, we hold these principles to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Self-evident truth. Our nation was founded on that, and that's very much in harmony with Scripture. Uh, and so, you know, when you get away from that, when you get away from, you know, that there is order in the universe, that there is a creator, and that, you know, truth is knowable and, in fact, undeniable, and there are certain things that you can't prove, you can't prove the, the, the first premises in any science. You guys recognize that's a standard thing that's taught. You have to assume them. You know, so there are certain things that we have to assume to know anything, like the whole is greater than the part. You can't prove that. You just have to know that. that, that as soon as you hear those words, you have to know that's true. If the word whole is defined as the whole and the part is defined as the part, the whole has to be greater than the part. Or, you know, the law of non-contradiction, that A cannot be non-A, at the same time and in the same relationship. They can't. It's either A or non-A. So those kind of things. And I think we, when we denied that, when we denied objective, knowable truth and, and made everything kind of relative and, and fuel that with kind of a radical individualism. It's been said that one of the things that's happening, and this is a theory that I can't back up, but it seems like it's got some things going for it, that one of the things that's happening in like the gender movement, for example, you know, where 
You know, there's 50 some different genders or whatever. And all kind of, I just read about a new one and I forget what it is. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and what that is said to be, in addition to the relativism that it's my truth and who are you to say it's not that, what's underneath that? This kind of radical individualism where nothing can get in front of me as an individual to do whatever it is that I want to do, that anything gets in the way of me as an individual, including an idea of maleness and femaleness that I can't escape some you know, objective reality is wrong. It's wrong. You know, I'm an individual. I get to choose everything for myself. This radical indiv- and you know, Western you know, liberalism that, you know, again, not in a bad sense, but in the sense of, um, of searching for truth and not you know, presupposing something. Um, Western liberal de- democracy or things like that uh, is based in a large part on the importance of the individual, right? Individual rights. The king doesn't have more rights than the serf because they're both made in the image of God, etc. So they have to be treated equally under the law, and our nation was really founded on that. And so they, on the one hand, we want to say, wow, yeah, individual rights, that really freed us up from this class of people who has less rights because they're less, they're inferior, and everybody's equal. And, and so on the one hand, yeah, individualism, wow, that look, look how much better off than we are than like China or something where you know, different segments can be wiped out for being inferior, or or communist Russia, same thing. So individual rights really, really are important, but if you take individualism to the point of anything that says I can't be what I want to be as an individual is wrong, where does it stop? You know, I can't be held accountable for murdering that person because that law can't can't constrain my individualism. I identify as a tree and I fell on him and, and killed him, you know, or whatever. You know, no law could ever apply to any person if you rationalized your individualism in, in the sense that that law didn't apply to me. How can you, constrain, how can you ever constrain anybody? And I think, again, that, that, that combined with the relativism is that there's no truth. There's no way to say that's wrong. You know, right now we still say child molesting and rape is wrong. But what if the rapist, you know, identifies in a certain way that how that can't apply to me? I mean, we really don't have a foundation to say he can't do that anymore. Um, we can't appeal to a, a higher moral level because we've thrown that out. So, yes, Eric. Ah. Eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. I think, so um, we got a couple of things there. 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul brings that up. Let me just get there. Um, I know in general what I want to say, but I just want to look at it. Um, So earlier than what we always read, he talks about, you know, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there also must be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Now, there's a big question on that verse. Is Paul speaking sarcastically as it, or he's saying, no, this has to happen in the sovereignty of God? But without going into that, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. So they were coming together to eat the Lord's Supper ostensibly, but because of their inner attitudes, Paul's saying, you've actually made the Lord's Supper not what it is. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For, this is what we always read, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread, etc. In the same manner he took the cup, etc. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So I think if you take that in context, and we're one body and we're taking communion. And yet at the same, you know, I know there are people who, because they would bring their own elements. There were poor people that didn't have anything and other people were just, you know, guzzling down the wine. Um, that in, in this context, what Paul is saying is that we have to look out for one another. And the rest of the text shows that. Um, Therefore, whoever eats his blood or drinks his cup in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, not discerning that you're all, I'd say the body of Christ at that sense, not the body in the bread in some you know, way, but not discerning because what was before at the top, uh, what he said about you know, some of you getting drunk and some of you having nothing and you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper because of you're not looking out for one another, not communing together in spirit. Uh, you were actually being puffed up and, and using this to, to condemn or to exalt yourself. Uh, and so for this reason, um, many are weak and many uh, are sick. And many, sorry, this reason, many are weak and sick among you, many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, now, now here's the conclusion. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So it is a one another emphasis. He starts off with the one another. He talks about how what they were doing was making the Lord's Supper invalid. And then at the end, that concern for one another. So the way they were eating in an unworthy manner was they were only caring about themselves and their own spiritual benefit and not looking for everyone else. Now, we can do it in other ways, too, I think. But, you know, thinking that somehow it's going to, you know, ex opera operato benefit me, that would be unworthy, too. Or thinking that I get this because I was a good person this week, uh, that would be another way. So I think there are other ways. But I think the specific way, the specific sin was they weren't loving one another. And that's part of the sign of the Lord's Supper. You know, it's that we're members of his body, but we're members of one another. And that's what they were invalidating, and therefore the whole supper was invalid. And so Paul threatens them with judgment. Well, I guess we have to wrap it up. Um, we'll try to do this again maybe someday in the future, but we're going to get back to Deuteronomy uh, next week. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We pray, Lord, as we prepare now to enter into your worship, that we would do so in spirit and in truth. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.